You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. And so we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings 5 if you want to follow along with me. And this is a story about who God is and how God operates and the, the way the power and the salvation of God moves. 2 Kings 5. Turn with me in a Bible or a phone. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to buy you one. And I'd encourage you as we go along, and we're going to read a little and then stop and talk and then read a little and stop and talk. But as we go along, be on the lookout for people you feel like you relate to in the story. Um, see if you can find yourself in the story, even if it's a part of someone's story. Uh, yeah, 2 Kings 5, starting at verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Now the Arameans on one of their raids had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel. She served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, Go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. We'll stop there, but keep a finger in it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If only, if only we knew what God was like. If only we knew the power of God, how the salvation and the grace of God move. If only we really knew who God was. If only. That's what the girl says in the story. And this girl is not somebody that you would have noticed. In fact, you might not have noticed as I read it because she doesn't even get a name in the story. And if we'd read the whole story, she would not have stood out to you. She does not really feel like a main character. But do not be confused by that. She is vital to the work that God is going to do in Naaman's story. She is absolutely a part of the salvation of God in this man's life. And she is someone we don't know a lot about. We hear that she is a girl from Israel, which is an ironic title because she is not in Israel. And she's not in Israel because she has been kidnapped. She is a prisoner of war. She was taken along with gold and silver and stuff from people's lives and houses. She's one of the few who survived one of these wars and battles. And she is a slave in the house of Naaman. She serves his wife. Now, Aram and Syria are the same country. So I'm just going to start saying Syria a lot. But Naaman, right, is the chief of all of the armies of Syria. That's what we hear in verse 1. So he is the head of the joint chiefs of staff. He's in charge of all the armies and where they go and what they do. And we hear in verse 1 that he is the guy who is getting victory after victory. That God has favored him and through him Syria and not Israel. God is favoring the enemies of Israel. That's a unique sentence in the Bible. It's a rare thing that we hear about. And this girl is a casualty of all of that. She is in a situation that should make someone bitter. She is absolutely in a situation that would make you question the goodness of God, if not your faith in God. She is serving not just one of her enemies, but the chief of her enemies, the architect of the destruction of her life. 
And she prays that he would come to know the power and the mercy and the salvation of God. This girl is amazing. Her faith is unbelievable. She is confident not only of God's plan and his power and his goodness in her life, but also that he would extend that to her worst enemy and slave master. This is the kind of faith that people take notice of. This makes people just sort of do a double take. Naaman is a really interesting guy. The deeper we go into his story, the more you realize he's, he's just desperate. Desperate for salvation. But something about this girl's faith makes him take notice. Something about this girl's faith is attractive to him and draws him in. This is the kind of faith that, despite all evidence to the contrary, believes that God is God. That God is good, that he has a plan for me, that he works all things together for good for those who love him. It is the kind of faith that cynical people like me have trouble believing exists. That is a thing that God is slowly and steadily working on in my life. But this kind of faith just it strikes me as impossible. And yet you realize she really does mean this. And that's the thing that captivates this Syrian general that makes him go... Maybe there really is a God like this because this slave girl is confident that she has something that I don't. The person at the bottom level of society genuinely believes that she has a power I don't understand. And that if I came into contact with that power, it would change my life. This girl doesn't just wish that he would be better. She is an evangelist. She starts preaching a gospel. There is a God in Israel who changes lives. There is a God in Israel who moves in power. There is a God who is real. And if you came into contact with him, he would change your life. This God has no enemies. He is not the God of Israel and not of Syria. He's not a God who hates some folks and loves others. This is a God with open arms. This is the God we hear about in the New Testament. For whom there is neither Jew or Greek or Syrian, neither male nor female, neither slave nor free. This is a God who heals. This is a God who speaks. This is a God who moves. This is a God who changes lives. Isn't it incredible that sometimes one of the things that God does with our suffering and our pain is to use it as a tool for witness in the lives of other people? I think this is good news, honestly, that one of the ways that God redeems some of the suffering that we go through is that it turns out to be useful in the lives of other people who are also suffering. There's a connection between the slave girl and Naaman. She understands something of what he's going through, this pain in his body, this pain in his life, because she's been through the same thing in her life. That kind of a faith is is attractive to folks. Stephen Colbert, uh, the late-night comedian, talks about this. Uh, he, He was interviewed by GQ magazine five years ago, just before he took over The Late Show. And in the interview, he talks about his mom and how her faith in the midst of suffering really changed his life. He says, I was raised in the Catholic tradition. I'll start there. That's my context for existence, is that I'm here to know God, to serve God, to love God, that we might be happy with each other in this life and with him in the next. Catechism. That makes a lot of sense to me. I got that from my mom, from my dad, from my siblings. Now, that sounds like a simplistic kind of faith, the kind of thing that you just use to fill in the right answers, the kind of thing a talk show host might say. But the thing you don't know about Stephen Colbert and that he mentions in this article is that his father and his brothers both died when he was 10 years old in a plane crash, a tragic, horrible thing that happened in his life. 
He says, I was left alone a lot after dad and the boys died. And it was just me and mom for a long time. And by her example, I am not bitter. By her example. And that's in italics. She was not. Broken, yes. Bitter, no. Even in those days of unremitting grief, she drew on her faith that the only way not to be swallowed by sorrow, in fact, to recognize that our sorrow is inseparable from our joy, is to always understand our suffering and ourselves in the light of eternity. To always understand our suffering and ourselves in the light of eternity. See, the girl from Israel in this story understands her suffering and herself in the light of eternity. And that's why she's able to preach the gospel with such boldness. And there are people in this room who have suffered much and greatly and in deep ways. And I can tell you this, that God will use that in the lives of those who are in desperate need of the good news of Jesus Christ. That you will have a profound impact and witness in people's lives. If you actually allow that weakness to come in a little bit as you talk about Jesus. So Naaman is hooked. Hooked. Because this girl knows who God is. She knows the power of God. She knows how it operates in her life and in his life. She is amazing. And he really wants to know more about this God. And so he goes to the king of Syria. And he talks and says, the girl said such and such and so and so. And he says, go. This is his best general. He definitely wants him to be healed. And so Naaman goes. This is the end of verse 5. He went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you my servant, Naaman, that you may cure him of leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give death or life that this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Just look and see how he's trying to pick a fight with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and halted at the entrance to Elisha's house. We'll stop there. So Naaman goes with a letter from the king of Syria to the king of Israel. This is like a visit of state, right? If the king of Jordan in our time sends his son to the United States to be healed of some disease, he would come with ambassadors. He would come with emissaries. There would be embassy parties. There would be fine speeches. There would be gifts. And we would talk about the relationship between our two countries and how great it's going to be. And by the way, if the kid dies, it's not going to be so great between our two countries. So when the king sends this letter, it's, hey, if you guys don't want any fighting anymore, just cure my general of leprosy. Simple as that. Just (laughs) just take away the leprosy. No mention of a prophet, no mention of God. And the king of Israel just freaks out. I don't have the power to give life and death. This is an impossible situation. I can't fix leprosy. This guy, what is this? Like, just he's looking for war? Is that what this is? Is this some kind of prank? Is this a joke? What, What is this? One of the things you will learn if you read the book of Kings is that the people who should know a lot about who God is do not. Most of the time, the kings of Israel, who should be very much in touch with the God of Israel, are the last to know and the last to really believe and genuinely don't think that the prophets have much power and the prophets don't usually trust them very much for really good reason. This is something that happens sometimes for those of us who are curious about Jesus and come to a church for the first time. We discover that actually many of the Christians do not seem to believe in their very own God. Don't seem to really know the power of God, right? The king of Israel 
doesn't seem to believe that God has power, and the slave girl in a foreign country is confident that God is good. There's a real irony and a reversal in this story. And the king of Israel is just terrified that this isn't going to work out. And Elisha, the prophet of God, hears about this and sends a note and says, let him come to me. And for some reason, Naaman is not put off by the fact that the most powerful man in Israel is apparently not the most powerful man in Israel. He clings to this shred of hope, this crazy idea that a slave girl in Syria knows more about God than this king. And so he clings to this hope for salvation, this belief that God maybe is who she said he was. That maybe this king doesn't really know who God is. And so he goes with his horses and with his chariots and with his silver and his gold. Now, we didn't really mention this before, but Naaman is a very big deal. He is a great man, we hear in verse 1. That means he's wealthy and he's powerful. He is well thought of by the king of his country. He is the chief general of all of the generals in his country. And he isn't just somebody who sends warriors out with, like, missions. He's a dangerous man with a sword, we hear. And he's also a leper. And the leprosy that the king really is, is concerned about is, in fact, an impossible situation. We could talk a lot about leprosy, and we're not going to. But here's what you need to know. Leprosy is a disability, a disability that takes the form of a terrible skin condition. And slowly and steadily, it eats away at your body. But not just your body. Your soul, your spirit, yourself, because nobody wants to be around you when you have leprosy. It's not just gross. People are afraid they're going to get it, and they're absolutely afraid this is some kind of curse from God. That is true in this time. So Naaman is on top of the world in every possible way, but there is one thing his money can't buy. There is one thing his power can't fix. There is one battle he cannot win against this terrible disability he has in his life, this brokenness, this pain, this shame that covers him literally. It touches every area of his body. And when he hears there's a possibility of salvation for that, he takes a crazy amount of money and goes to another country in the hope of a hope that maybe God could do something, that maybe God really is like this, that maybe God really does save people, that maybe God really does change lives. The amount of money that he brings, talents of silver and gold, shekels, those are weights. That's how much things weigh. So in our time, the weight of the silver is $280,000. In our time, the weight of the gold is $3.8 million. That's like three days ago math on the Internet. Like that, that's just what the value of ounces of gold are. So $4.1 million, that's what he's coming to town in, like, metal, right? Like he's bringing carts and silver and gold, ridiculous amounts of weight, chariots and horses. This is a, an entourage. This is a parade of money. And by the way, in his time, that's an excessive amount of money. Not just in our time, but in that time, mining operations aren't really common. This is a crazy amount of money that he is bringing to Israel. He desperately, desperately, desperately wants salvation. He also brings with him ten garments. I don't know if you noticed that. Ten snazzy outfits. <laughs> and that sounds strange to you and me because we could, you know, if I had four million dollars, I could buy clothes. And he brings ten of them. But uh, in our time, right, you can go into a store and you can buy these things. But in his time, these might be silken robes as far away as China or Persia. They came on land. These may be very expensive, very rare things. They might be suits of armor. We just don't know what they are, military technology. But I can tell you, if he brings $4 million, the outfits aren't the kind of thing you could pick up at the Gap. <laughs> these are very, very wealthy, very valuable kinds of things that he's bringing with him. 
He is desperate for salvation. Tim Keller, when 9-11 happened, 2001, he said, you know, I think probably in Manhattan, 10% of the people are open to the gospel in a way they never would have been open to it before. 10% of Manhattan. That's a crazy number of people. And 9-11 was a really big deal. But the pandemic we've been through for the last year is a very big deal. I would be surprised, honestly, if it was only 10% of Phoenix, Arizona, that was open to the gospel in a way that they have never been open before. That were desperate for healing and salvation. That doesn't really understand our God or the things that we do or, or why people sing songs or why there's bread and juice or what exactly is going on. They don't really know the story, but they do know they've been alone. And they do know that they're desperate. And they do know that the world is in chaos. And they do know that they can't just live like casual middle class lives and expect that nothing will ever happen to them, that nothing bad will ever go on in their lives. This, this has created fear and anxiety and shaken people to their very core. And they've begun to ask the sorts of questions that people like you and I ask. Why is there something rather than nothing? Who is God? What is he like? What would it look like to have a relationship with God? What would it look like to find meaning and purpose? All of those fundamental questions that people ask in their lives. 10% of the people, I wonder, maybe more. How many people in our life would spend every cent that they have to come to know something that you and I know? To come to hear about a God that you and I know about? So Naaman goes. He goes from the palace in Syria to the palace in Israel to Elisha's house, which is Probably a shack in the desert. Don't think nice house. Think old beat up shed. No windows. And the door is probably not made of wood. It's probably just like an animal skin kind of hung. There's dirt floors. This is not an impressive thing. Naaman, it says, shows up with horses and with chariots to this tiny little hole. So, verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times. Your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away saying, I thought that for me, he would surely have come out and stood and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? He turned and went away in rage. But his servants approached and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was, wash and be clean? So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. We'll stop there. A very wealthy and very powerful man shows up to what objectively is not a wealthy or a powerful man's house with chariots and horses and millions of dollars in gold and silver and, and snazzy outfits. And he's there and he's right outside and the guy doesn't come out. He sends out a messenger like he's some great lord and king and doesn't really need to deal with the likes of you. And the house, again, if, if the servant comes out and moves the skin door, I'm sure you could see Elisha's foot in there. Like it's not a big house. He's not hidden away somewhere in the house. This is, this is a ridiculous situation. The servant comes out and says, go down to the Jordan River and take a bath and you will be clean. And the general looks around at the parade he brought with him. And just 
for real, and just turns away and starts walk, like muttering to himself, this, this guy wouldn't even come out of his house to talk to me? I didn't come here for rivers. We have rivers in Damascus. They are nice. I don't need water. I'm here to meet this prophet of God. I wanted to find the power of God. I was looking for salvation. And he, what? Take a bath? That's what he's saying to me? Now, I will tell you this. Pro tip for all the parents in the room. I use this story at bath time all the time with my kids. All the time with my kids. And they will say, I'm itchy, and I'm tired, and I'm dirty, and I'm sweaty. And I'll say, go take a bath. And they'll say, no. And you'll think, take a bath. Like, you'll be clean. Like, this is very straightforward. This is not a complicated. You've taken millions of baths. Why are we fighting? You love baths. You will feel great at the end of the bath. No. And I'll say, Naaman took seven baths. And all you have to do is take one. And they'll say, that sounds really good. Now, here's the thing. Imagine how ridiculous it would feel to have just decided that this is not worth your time and to have your servants look at you and say, I mean, we came all this way. It's not that hard. Do you really, do you really want to give it a shot? And now Naaman has this choice, right, between pride, which is definitely a thing in his life, or the humility of deciding that maybe he's not in control with his relationship with God, that maybe he doesn't get to dictate the terms of how healing or salvation come, or even what the new life with God looks like, or how it comes to you. That maybe this life is actually something that's going to come to him as a gift, something he has no control over, and that it might be just as easy as taking a bath in a river. And so he goes. By the way, Samaria to the Jordan River, 30 miles, give or take. That's going to take days. That's not a small drive. And then when he gets there, he has to get into the water, get clean, get out, dry off, get clean again. I don't know what bathing seven times is, but you don't just stay in the water. You have to get out. And after the second or the third time of that, to know that you have five, four more times of taking a bath in the river, each time it's not working, each time you're thinking, what am I doing? What is is this? Is this really going to change anything about my life? And then the seventh time he gets out of the water and he's clean. And the leprosy is gone and his life has been changed. Now, the early church fathers and mothers, when they read this story, they can't help but see baptism. Hallelujah. I can't help but see baptism either. It's just, there's no word baptism in this story. This is clearly not a baptism. There's so much about it that's not, and yet it's just, it looks so much like baptism. There's nowhere else in the Old Testament where someone goes down into water and comes out clean, not just of a disease, but of more than a disease. A lot has washed away from Naaman here. There is blood on his hands, the blood of the people of Israel. He is a slave master. His pride has washed away in the river, along with his shame and his leprosy. Inside and outside, he has been made clean. And it will be in the time of the New Testament that a guy named John will go down to this same river, will stand in the water and say, there's baptism for forgiveness of sins. John invents this. Baptism was a thing before John. Baptism for forgiveness of sins, that's a John thing. And repentance that comes along with it. This change of heart, this humility of soul, this person who's willing to go into the water and say, I want to be a new person. And Jesus will go into that water and come back out and join us in baptism that we might join him in baptism. There are people in the history of the church who would say that baptism is about the forgiveness of sins. They come from particular traditions in churches. We would not say that in our church. Forgiveness does not come at baptism. It came at the cross. Forgiveness is done. There's nothing you can do that can bring forgiveness into your life. It's already happened. Happened a Good Friday. It's over and done. You can't do anything that gets God to forgive you. 
You can't do anything that gets God to love you. God already loves you. Absolutely. There are people in other traditions who would say, baptism then, nothing really happens. It's a nice thing that people do, but it's not that big a deal. We would say no. There's something very real that happens in baptism. People encounter God in a profound way, in the way that Jesus encounters God. The Spirit comes down from heaven, the sky opens up, and we hear, you are my child, you belong, you are a part of my family. We would say that happens at baptism. That you and I know and know and know. We become marked as sons and daughters of God. We become welcomed in to God's family. We become adopted in a profound and powerful way. We would say that baptism is a symbol. But when we say symbol, we mean it in the classic sense of the word symbol. Two Greek words, symbole, to bring together, to hold together. At baptism, you and I, the people we are and the people we want to be, we just get brought together, held together by this symbol. The the reality of what God has done at the cross and at the resurrection, those get brought together for us at baptism. The world we live in now and the world that is to come, the kingdom of God, those get brought together, held together at baptism. If you have never been baptized, that can happen for you. You can be baptized. You can come to know what it is to be called a son and daughter of God in Jesus Christ. And we want you to be baptized. If that's something you want, come talk to me after this. We'd love to talk to you. But for those of us who have been baptized, there are days when you wonder if God loves you. There are days when you wonder if you've screwed up too much. There are days when you wonder if you're too much of a failure. There are days when, like that girl in Israel, you wonder if God has left you and abandoned you. And there's a great saint in the church, Martin Luther, who says, whenever that happens, whenever you wonder, remember. Remember that you were baptized. Remember that you are a son or a daughter of God. That's what happens to Naaman in the water. And he comes out transformed. He wants to become a part of Israel. This terrible pagan general who has murdered the people of Israel many times has become a brand new person. Verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Please accept a present from your servant. But he says, as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will accept nothing. He urged him to accept, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let two mule loads of earth be given to your servant. For your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god except the Lord. But may the Lord pardon your servant on one count. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow down in the house of Rimon, when I do bow down in the house of Rimon, may the Lord pardon your servant on this one count. He said to him, Go in peace. So Naaman comes back the 30 miles all the way to the random little hut in the desert. And when he gets there, he's a new man inside and out. And he comes to the man who has changed his life and he says, please take my millions of dollars. And the guy who lives in the shack in the desert says no (laughs) to millions of dollars, to wagon loads of gold and silver. He says, no, God heals for free. Why doesn't Elijah come out of the house? Because it's not Elijah who's going to heal. Elisha. It's not Elisha who's going to heal. The river. Is it the river who heals? No. It's not the water. It's the God. 
It's not Elisha. He can't take credit for it. He can't take money for it. God heals for free. As the Lord lives, he says. Now that you know who God is, now that you know how God's power operates, now that you know what salvation looks like and feels like and how it happens, you should know that I didn't do anything. I will accept nothing. He tries to insist, and Elisha says, no. And then the guy realizes that salvation is a gift and actually asks for more gifts. He says, can I have some of the dirt? I want some of the dirt of Israel. I like that he asks. Like you just dig. I want, I want mule loads of dirt. This dirt is more valuable to me than gold and silver. I want to bring this dirt back to Syria because I'm going to go back to a place where people don't know this God. And I want to bring the dust of this God, of this land with me so that every time I worship, I can worship in Israel, even though I'm not in Israel. I want to bow down only to this God. But, he says, I'm surrounded by people who don't know about this, who don't understand who this God is. They don't realize there's only one God and His name is Yahweh. They don't know that there's only one God, His name is Jesus. So, sometimes I'm going to have to live bits and pieces of this old life, and I'm going to be very uncomfortable. And I just want to ask if that's okay. Like, I'm going to have to go into the temple of a false God and bow down because my boss bows down. And I just want you to know that inside I'm not bowing down. And Elisha says, yeah, I get it. And those of us who've come to know Jesus and have been surrounded by non-Christian friends and family who know that all of these habits surround us, it's a really tricky thing, isn't it? It's a really hard thing to figure out, how do I follow Jesus right now? What does it look like to be faithful in this situation? How do I, how do I live as though there is only one God and his name is Jesus? And you know that there are all sorts of gods that all sorts of people bow down to. There are all sorts of things that surround us, all sorts of temptations all the time. It's as hard for us as it is for Naaman. But Naaman, this guy, has had his life transformed inside and out. And one of the things he knows is he can't bow down to false gods anymore. He can't worship those gods anymore because his God healed for free. And his God changed his life. And he now understands who that God is, how that God operates. This is a really important thing that you see in the life of Naaman. Listen very closely. It's not your faith that saves you. You do not need to believe stronger. That's not what saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. It's not how much you believe. It's who you believe in. That's who saves you or not. Naaman has begun to understand that it's not what he does. It's who he worships. That's what saves him. That's how he gets saved. It's not that he has to do anything to get God to love him. It's not that he does anything to get God to save him. He has been saved because he's believed in the right God. The God is the one who saves. It's not our faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith that saves us. And that God saves for free. That's who he is. That's how he operates. That's how his power moves in the life of Naaman and the life of you and of me. Would you pray with me?